So if you're new to hiking, I've recently updated a post on my website on the best day hikes in Scotland. Uh, go check that out. Or you can get in touch with me on my Instagram at Becky the Traveller and I'll be happy to help you out. Have a lovely day. Bye. Hello and thank you for downloading. You're listening to Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure, a weekly series looking at unfamiliar places across the world and aspects of travelling you may never have thought of. I'm your host, the Barefoot Backpacker, a middle-aged Brit with a passion for offbeat travel, history, culture and the whys behind travel itself. So join me as we venture Beyond the Brochure. I'm still not 100% satisfied with my voice at the moment. I'm sure it's not as clear as it should be, but probably nothing, a bit of lubrication won't resolve, like cream or something. Not a euphemism, I must stress, especially not in this time of social distancing. So how are we all? Are we all bearing up? I hope you haven't resorted to extreme measures, you know, like cannibalism. That wouldn't be the done thing. I'm surviving mainly on sandwiches, homemade curry and fruit squash cordial. That said, I did get another beer delivery in a couple of days ago from a beer shop on the south side of Sheffield, so I've got enough cans to last me a month or so again, especially given I'm pretty much only drinking two a week. One on Thursdays, because I'm registered with a beer app untapped and one of the badges you can collect is for drinking new beer on Thursdays, and I figure if I'm going to drink beer at all, I might as well do it then. Sad, I know. I've been out for a couple of runs this week, both early morning jobs. The beauty of this time of year is that it's now getting light before 6am here and with the weather being tactlessly, marvellously sunny, dry and warm for most of the month, it means it's been quite pleasurable to hop out in the early mornings. Still more people than I might have expected about, but nothing I can't handle. I also didn't have any lasting aches in my legs after the last one, so I'm obviously getting fitter with regards to the hills. The latest I'm hearing is a suggestion that some kind of social distancing will be in place for most of the year, regardless of lockdown status. And to be honest, as an introvert, I'm pretty comfortable with that. I probably won't change my lifestyle that much, though in the long term I'll have to brave the larger supermarkets rather than concentrate on local shops. At some point I will run out of cheap couscous and frozen vegetable pastries. It might also mean I have to start wearing sandals again. I think since lockdown started I've pretty much forgotten what footwear is used for. Though I did notice a wasp in the kitchen yesterday, so it was tempting to run and get one and wave it out. But of course, not that tempting, because it was a wasp. My policy with wasps is not to be in the same time zone as them. The other thing that's becoming apparent is how much later regular international travel is likely to restart. Again, for me in the medium term, that's not so much of an issue, because I wasn't planning on doing anything anyway. As mentioned a couple of podcasts ago, most of my adventures this year were to have been domestic, probably mostly in Scotland but it makes it even less likely I'll disappear off to West Africa in early 2021 with my friend Inga. Still, these countries will always be here and I'm probably going to be alive, so there's always time. Speaking of Scotland, that's the subject of this pod episode. And yes, I'm going into it much earlier than I normally do on my episodes, partly because I have so many wonderful contributions from my travel Twitter friends, and partly because in this era of lockdown, I don't really have a lot else to report on my personal life. My last pod was about the Outer Hebrides. Someone else who's been to that part of the world is Nat from Nat Packer Travel, who talks a little bit about an unplanned visit to Harrison Lewis. The only Outer Hebrides I've been to are the Isles of Harrison Lewis, 
I was on a trip renting a camper van going all around Scotland. We were somewhere up north and the plan was to go down to Ullapool and then down to Skye. Um, as we were in a pub though, we got chatting to a guy who used to drive the ferries. Is it driving? I'm not sure. But anyway, he used to do the ferries and he told us that from Ullapool we can go across to Harris and Lewis and then we can get a ferry across the sky. So change of plan, we did that instead. I had no idea what to expect on the islands. Um, what I did find though, they were very quiet. I mean, it was the beginning of March, so it was a bit out of season really, but it was absolutely gorgeous. Um, we got stuck on road because of a cow in the way, as you do. The beaches there were absolutely incredible, despite it being freezing. Um, yeah, it's just brilliant views. And when we were there, they, they'd um, recently opened a distillery on Harris, and they the whiskey should be um, nearly ready now, I believe. But when we were there, because whiskey has to be distilled for like or matured for three years and a day or something for it to actually be whiskey and it was newly opened so they were doing gin instead so went in and had a bit of gin tasting and it was actually the best gin I've ever tasted because I don't even like gin but they made it with sea kelp and so it gave it kind of a salty and sugary taste so yeah um, I'd love to explore more of the Ash Hebrides there's definitely much more to see on there. One place I didn't talk directly about but rather only mentioned in passing in my last pod was the archipelago of St Kilda. I'll talk more about this myself in bonus content on my Patreon over the weekend. Let's be honest, the reason it didn't appear in last week's episode is because I never got round to writing about it. But suffice to say, it's a very special and interesting place. A series of islands are way out in the Atlantic Ocean, most noted for its bird life. They used to be inhabited, but everyone was evacuated off in 1930, mainly due to its sheer isolation. It's a fascinating place now, though, and one person who has been there is a friend of mine from Twitter who I'll refer to as V, as they've requested anonymity. I've also slightly disguised their voice on the recording. Most people who visit St Kilda do so for a day trip. They stayed seven days and had a very different and special experience. We had family friends who went over on a work expedition to rebuild walls and such when I was little, and they came back with a slideshow presentation, the kind of old camera slides that you use with a projector to shine onto the wall. It's so long ago I can hardly remember what they showed, but I remember their excitement about the island, and I've always wanted to go myself. So, one summer I found myself with some free time, and I took myself over to Harris and caught the bus down to Lewis, then waited nervously until we got confirmation that the boat was going across to St Kilda. I was super lucky, it was a very flat and calm day, because even on a regular day, the sailing was up and down and a wee bit bumpy leading more than a few people to be seasick. I don't think I would have handled anything rougher. As it was, I went to sleep to pass the time, as it's quite a long way. Most of the other tourists, they're only going for a few hours, so they were looking at me with my huge rucksack full of food and all the rest of it, like I'm a little bit crazy, and like they're a little bit jealous as well. So when I get off the boat, I'm led to a campsite, there's only eight people allowed to be staying on the island in their campsite at a time, and I was lucky to have the entire place to myself to choose a lovely camp and set up whilst everybody else was running around trying to explore the island before the boat went back. It was an odd feeling to see the boat sail away without me, knowing that I was going to be here for another seven days, hoping for fair weather and sunshine. And as luck would have it, it was one of the best summers that I think Scotland has ever seen, 
the water off St Kilda looked more like the Mediterranean, and the sunshine was almost constant from morning to night. Only one day we had a little bit of rain, and even that wasn't a serious rain like we usually get in Scotland. So I wandered around. There's not very much island, so you might think that you could get bored spending seven days on a lump of land which is about a kilometre across. But it's surprisingly easy to keep yourself busy, wandering up and watching the seabirds, checking the puffins. I think I spent a good few hours sitting semi-balanced on a steep, not quite cliff, but a little bit daunting hillside, capturing pictures of puffins as they flew back in with sand eels in their mouths. It was actually really fun and I only left when my camera ran out of battery. Another day I spent going over the backside of the island where hardly anybody ever gets to go. The grass cut short by the sheep as they constantly chew on it. And absolutely nobody there. I lay on the comfortable grass staring up, doing very little. Very glad not to be being attacked by the skewers that chased you across the way to get there. And then in the evenings I would come back, try and take some photos of the sunset go to sleep early and try and get up to take pictures of the sunrise. It's a incredible place and the light changes the landscape. It just, you have to go there and see it. And because the tours, they take place during the day, not very many people will see the sunrise and set over St Kilda. So it's definitely worth staying. But this pod is about Scotland in general. So let me start my experiences by talking about my childhood. As you know, by now, I grew up with my uncle and grandmother. Every year we went to Scotland for one or two weeks, staying in a self-catering cottage. Essentially, it was a a home from home and no different to how Airbnb works now, except you used to find these places in a printed catalogue because this was the 1980s. Anyhow, though there were a couple of places we stayed in twice, over the years we visited quite a varied amount of the country, from Cullen on the Moray Coast in the north to a place near Stranraer in the deep southwest, and from Onich near Ben Nevis in the west to Bemerside in the Scottish borders. We also went to the golfing gold mine that is Carnoustie twice, despite none of us playing golf outside of computer games, even playing on the putting green is beyond our spatial technicalities, and a couple of times to the centre near Stirling and Loch Erne around the Trossachs. While in those places, of course, we took day trips out to explore the areas. There are many pictures in a box underneath my bed in my real home of me standing in front of almost every single ruined abbey in the borders, several northern beaches, and at Loch Ness. None of Glasgow, though. Despite being from the kindred city of Liverpool, my grandmother refused to even allow us to drive through the city because she was critical of its reputation. This involved some very weird detours and gave me a pointlessly great knowledge of the M73. My uncle recently informed me we even once went to Ardnamurchan Lighthouse to visit the furthest most west point of Great Britain. I have no recollection of this. You'd have thought walking there would have triggered a memory, but no. I do remember taking an obscure ferry from Mull back to the mainland that on the way back after my hike I passed on the bus, but not the lighthouse. My last adventure up to Scotland on a family holiday was a couple of years after my grandmother died. Me and my uncle went up to the Isle of Skye, via Glasgow, naturally. And as a lazy teenager it was a very weird little trip. My uncle went out for walks a lot and I stayed inside doing, well, bugger all, watching episodes of The Bill. My most abiding memory, though, was of the water. It was clear brown when it came out of the tap, reflective of the large amount of peat in the area, I guess. Obviously, if I went to the same place now, my activities would be oh so different. In general, though, these family holidays were to such different areas that it gave me a good overview of Scotland, albeit mainly the mainland and a couple of the nearer islands. It showed me the difference in scenery, towns and lifestyles. We never stayed in any of the cities, always in villages sort of 
outside. Carnoustie might well have been the largest town we stayed in, though I'd probably need to check. The journeys up there were long, but it was still accessible, far enough away so that it felt like an adventure, but still close enough to be back home on the last day by tea time. Remember, this was a time when my friends at school were of one of two kinds, those that went on family holidays to the beaches of Rill, and those that went on family holidays to the beaches of Ibiza. Always beaches, just a different ambience, and a very different social dynamic, of course. Someone who grew up in Scotland is Liana Lee from Lost Lass, and she talks about childhood visits to the Mull of Kintyre and Loch Fine. So I sort of grew up uh, in Scotland on and off. Uh, my mum's family comes from the UK, so I'm half American, half British. And I have very early memories of landing in, in London at Heathrow and spending a few days getting over jet lag at a local hostel before we would board the train to Glasgow. And we, once we got to Glasgow, um, we would switch to a bus. It was a, it was a three and a half hour coach trip. I remember to the north and west. Um, so we were on, we were heading for the Kintyre Peninsula on the west coast, and we would go past Loch Lomond. We would go past Inverary. We would go past just all these beautiful coastal uh, villages and towns that the gorgeous gorgeous crags would go up into the hills and back down again and it was just the most amazing it was like entering another world especially then in the 90s when when most of um, my family traveled most of the UK because there wasn't as much construction going on not as much developments and improvement it was just completely pristine or at least it felt to me um so then once we reached uh sort of the end of the road at least the road closest to where we were going Loch Hilpid, uh, we would need to catch there's there are only two buses a day that that uh, went through Loch Hilpid aside from the coach so we needed to get um, a ride uh, one of my cousins would pick us up and take us to their caravan site Port Ban. Uh, there'd be a, the big house on the top of the hill that overlooked, you know, the the grassy fields where the where the sheep were, and then you'd walk down and you'd see this gorgeous, gorgeous uh, caravan site in a little nook right behind the seashore, and you saw the seashore kind of stretched out in front of you, and it was just the most beautiful thing I have ever seen, and it's still the most beautiful spot in the world to me. I have so many great memories of of growing up there, of of playing with the children uh, that came by with their families, of spending falls and winters in uh, caravans, and Christmases and New Year's up at the big house celebrating Hogmanay and um, going out to see the islands, you know, seeing Isla and Jura and Gia and going out to the Hebrides. And it's just the most amazing spot and I fell in love with Scotland then, and it's a lifelong love that I, I hope will always remain because it still is, is very, very much tied to the memories of my childhood, of my family, and of my identity, really. Obviously, as I discovered world travel, I tended not to think so much about Scotland. In addition, I had 12 years in the English West Midlands, whereupon it became easier, cheaper, and quicker to get to most of Europe than to Scotland. It wasn't until I found online friends there and had a job servicing a call centre just outside Glasgow that I started to go up there again. 
I've been there a few times in the last 10 years then, most often to the Glasgow area, weirdly enough, not just because of work, but I also, I dated a lady who lived in the satellite town of Carluke, reminiscent of Kirkby and Ashfield actually, both small towns with an oldie, a coach company, a large council estate, and not much else. She now lives on the Mull of Kintyre, which as Leanna earlier said, is a far better place, even if a bit more remote. Whilst I've only ever been as far down as her once, and I had to say that very carefully, I've been to the general area a couple of times, including staying in a hotel on Loch Fine and having the most wonderful seafood, langoustines the size of the plate, for instance. And this is one of the things about Scotland. Scottish food, it has, uh, shall we say, a bit of a reputation. There's a number of jokes about it, often self-perpetuated, I have to say. The Clydebank comedian Kevin Bridges in particular is fond of self-deprecation on this point. And much of what the English think of Scottish food isn't exactly complimentary. Tales of greasy takeaway food, salad being one leaf of lettuce and a slice of onion just for colour, and of course the passion for deep frying everything and anything, from Mars bars to pizza slices. There's even the urban rumour of one chippy in Glasgow selling a deep fried doner kebab, the stoner, weighing in at about 3,000 calories. I've eaten a deep fried Mars bar several times, once oddly in my work canteen in Nottinghamshire in England, and they're exactly as you expect them to be. They're really nice and sweet for the first few bites with the slight feeling that you're eating something highly illicit. But once you're about two-thirds of the way through, your stomach starts to go, listen, I don't know what you think you're doing, but please stop, like right now. Similar to a giant moist chocolate cake, or allegedly LSD. It's interesting in small doses, but after having some, you really don't fancy any more for, you know, the rest of the week. The other bad rap Scotland has is for its alcohol. It's a belief that everyone, in Glasgow especially, is permanently off their head on tenants extra or some other really high alcohol, low taste lager. It's time to put these stereotypes to bed. As I said earlier, fish is a major part of Scottish food. This could be, as at Loch Fine, simply well prepared fish or seafood. Or you could go down the fish soup route. Cull and skink from the aforementioned Moray Coast is as ubiquitous as New England clam chowder and just as tasty. While near Carnoustie is the town of Arbroath. Famed for its smokies, the kippers that are, well, herring that are held up above a oak fire and just let the smoke to make them cook. And of course the rivers are noted for salmon and very popular with anglers, both casual and professional. Scotland is also famed for its game. Hunting lodges are a common sight across the northern mountains. Indeed, one of the most remote railway stations in the country at Coror was built for that exact purpose, to allow easy access to the hunting grounds for the travelling gentry. These days it's more used by hikers and hillwalkers, but even so, venison and grouse especially are well-renowned. And then there's alcohol, which of course, well, what can I say? It's not just decent craft beer, which I have to mention for um, contractual reasons, but of course most people think of Scotland and alcohol. Their first thought is a nice glass of Scotch whisky. Now it's a drink that's grown on me as I've aged, uh, similar to a fine whisky in fact, but I'm still nowhere near as good at discerning the different flavours and tastes as I am with beer. I mean, I can get the sense that some of them are smooth, some of them are harsh, some of them are smoky, some of them are peaty. But aside from that, I can't vocalise the difference. Not as well as I can with beer at any weight. I just, you know, drink the stuff. The jury's still out on haggis. I mean, I quite like it, but it's an acquired taste. Take the innards of a sheep, mix it with oatmeal, stick it in the lining of the stomach and boil. It tastes as good as it sounds. You might get the impression Scotland isn't the best place for vegetarians. You'd be largely right. Aside from the obsession with oatmeal, mmm, porridge, and neeps and tatties, turnips, swede, potato, parsnip, that sort of thing, it's a culture that thrives on its carnivorous style. But I guess in a country so far north and so mountainous, it would be ever thus. 
I did actually once make vegetarian haggis. It seemed to consist largely of oatmeal and red kidney beans. At the time I worked alongside a chap from Scotland who, when I told him I'd made vegetarian haggis, his comment was, there is no such thing as a vegetarian haggis. It does not exist. I don't know what you made, but it is not haggis. They're very proud of the fact that they eat the innards of a sheep. At least they didn't deep fry it. Although I suppose you could get deep fried haggis. I've probably seen it in a chippy somewhere. Apart from food, what most people know about Scotland is scenery. On our hike across Great Britain last year, details of which are available in the 10th episode of this podcast, me and Becky walked through a fair amount of it in about three weeks, and I'd say it was the most pleasant part of the whole hike. The West Highland Way took us along Loch Lomond and then over part of Rannoch Moor, very different but quite spectacular. But the route across the Ardmurkin Peninsula was something very special indeed. Remote forest service roads along the lochs, then isolated paths, some burly even distinguishable in the boggy ground. Across cliff tops with views out over the sea to the Inner Hebrides islands of Egg, Muck and Rum. Great names, I find. Part of the trail in Ardnamurkin went through a small winding valley with huge trees and steep green hill peaks either side, and it felt for all the world like some kind of nomadic route through the Central Asian foothills. It didn't feel like the UK at all. Some of my favourite landscapes, though, were in the lowlands, especially as we strolled along the cross-borders drove road towards Livingston. The path was pretty easy underfoot, grass or smoothed-out trail, pretty even, going around the hills, not directly up them. Pennine Way, I'm looking at you here. And oh, the vistas! That hike made me appreciate and realise my liking for wide open spaces, for long views out towards distant rolling hills, for open valleys and plains below, for emptiness save the occasional bird and sheep. This is Scotland, there's always sheep. Scotland also having fairly liberal right to roam laws meant that there are also great places to pitch a tent and spend the night in nature. Admittedly some of the ground might be a bit soft and relatively bumpy, what's flat for a foot isn't necessarily flat for a sleeping bag, but as long as you find roughly the right spot the experience is spectacular. Here's Becky herself with her experiences of Scotland and her take on the hike that we did together. I first visited Scotland on a rugby tour back in my 20s. Back then it was all about drinking and playing rugby and I had no clue how gorgeous it was. Scotland has two national parks, uh, Loch Lomond and the Trossachs and the Cairngorms. But it wasn't until 2017 that I revisited Scotland on my road trip at the national parks in the UK, as well as doing a side trip up Ben Nevis. I'd never heard of Loch Lomond and Trossachs before, and I was totally amazed by how stunning it was. On my trip, I wild camped by locks, went for beautiful walks, climbed my second Munro and had a great time in spite of the midges. After that trip, the next time I stepped foot in Scotland was on my E2W hike in 2019, which I hiked with Ian. I'm sure you've heard him talk about it. We hiked from the Scottish borders all the way to the furthest westerly point in the UK. Ardnamurkin Lighthouse. There were too many highlights from that section of the walk. To begin with, we hiked the luscious green hills on the St Cuthbert's Way and were lucky enough to have amazing weather. Yes, Scotland does have sunshine sometimes. We continued through the Pentland Hills. I was looking up at the tops as we wild camped for the night. I was really longing to return to summit them and it's still on my list to do. Then on to the canal network and seeing the Falkirk wheel rotating, um, which is an amazing feat of engineering. 
And after weeks and weeks of very few people, we then followed the very popular 96 mile West Highland Way trail to Fort William. And I have many wonderful moments of that section. Some of my favourites included views of Loch Lomond from Conic Hill and walking through beautiful Glencoe. Uh, you can actually check out my YouTube video to see how Ian and I got on hiking together, as well as how many midges there were. The final section of the walk took us along one of my favourite parts of Scotland, uh, the west coast on the Ardnamurkin Peninsula. Uh, with white sandy beaches, rugged coastline and views out to sea of Scottish islands. It was a perfect end to our Scottish adventure. As you heard, the hike took us past Glencoe. Someone else who likes Glencoe is Nat, who we heard from earlier. Here she is giving a little history lesson of the area. Scotland is definitely one of my favourite places to travel to. I've been several times and I can't help myself, I keep going back. So naturally there are some places in the Highlands that are special to me. One of these places is Glencoe. I don't know why it's so special to me, but it just is, really. I, I love the place. I've been at least three times, and whenever I go to Scotland, I make the effort to see Glencoe. The valley itself is absolutely beautiful. The It's just stunning. And whenever I go, I've never seen a sunny day there, basically. It's always dark and moody, but this really adds to the atmosphere especially because of the bloody history of Glencoe. So what happened was, in 1692, after the Jacobite uprising, all the clans had to swear allegiance to the new king. Now, the Macdonalds were living in Glencoe, and for some reason, lots of things got in the way. You know, stuff happens. Their paperwork, I suppose, got to the king late, which wasn't good. So... The king sent a Campbell to the Macdonalds with 120 men. And they went to Macdonalds, they received hospitality, which meant that once hospitality has been given and received or accepted, you can't guest and hosts can't do any harm to each other. It's basically a nice pack that the clans had traditionally. But one night as they were staying with the Macdonalds, the Campbells turned on the Macdonalds and killed 38 men whilst they slept. Many of the Macdonalds fled into the mountains, into the Hidden Valley, but more died to exposure after they escaped because it was, well, it was middle of winter, it was like January or February, so it was freezing cold. So that's known as the Massacre of Glencoe. And even now, there is a bit of tension between Macdonalds and Campbells there's even an inn in Glencoe that has a sign saying no Campbells allowed. So I say I don't know why Glencoe is so special to me, but I just love it despite its bloody history. Ben Nevis also got a mention. Here's Fran from the Seizure Adventure podcast who talks a bit more about the UK's highest mountain. If it sounds odd, it's because this is an extract from an episode of the podcast she did specifically on climbing Ben Nevis when she interviewed a chap called Joe Stevenson who climbed it for the charity Epilepsy Action. Hello adventurers, welcome back. Today, the podcast is going to be taking you to one of the most remote parts of the UK, an area renowned as the last wilderness of Britain. Even the most touristic areas take some effort to get to, and I am of course speaking about the Scottish Highlands. The Highlands are one of my favourite places in the world. I was up in Glen Nevis back in November for some much-needed mountain time. 
It reminded me that mountains, and particularly Scottish mountains, are one of those places where you can really immerse yourself in nature. Hiking on the rugged path, you need to be really aware of your own body and the surroundings, and particularly the weather. Scotland is famous for being saturated with water. Rain, cloud, mist, snow, everything you can imagine. And when I was there, I was soaked to my skin on some days. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with the British mountains, Ben Nevis is the tallest mountain in the UK. It stands at 1,345 metres, so that's about 4,400 feet, which might not seem high to those of you listening in America or Europe, but I climbed Ben Nevis in 2008, and I can tell you it is harder than you'd imagine, partly because the path starts close to sea level, so nearly all of that height is ascent. Scotland is also, of course, noted for wildlife. As already noted, the islands are especially known for their bird life. The Outer Hebrides and St Kilda are home to all manner of seabirds on migrating routes from the Arctic to Africa and the Americas. There's rock stacks over there, home to thousands upon thousands of birds all flying around. And as I spoke about last week, the islands and highlands are also home to a vast array of aquatic and semi-aquatic life, like otters, seals and dolphins. Another contributor who found joy in sea life in Scotland is Ruth, from Rue Loves Travel, who found something special on a beach. Scotland is definitely one of my favourite countries in the world, and it was a great place to go on holiday with my dog in tow when he was still alive. My boyfriend was the driver on two separate road trips, which included visiting the islands of Mull, Iona, Skye, um, some of the touristy locks, Ben Nevis, and many historical sites such as Culloden, various castles and monuments. One of my favourite memories was one mild summer's day sitting on a sandy beach with my dog asleep on my lap. Uh, many might not think of Scotland as having lovely beaches, but it has beautiful beaches. And we were there at this particular beach for a special reason. At Shannonry Point, I hope I said that right, when the tide comes in each day, it brings a pod of dolphins following the fish in for their evening meal. And I'd read about this and I expected them to be like a dot in the distance, but they were literally metres away, feeding, playing. It was amazing. And um, I'll never forget it. I hope to visit even more of Scotland in the future, especially more of the islands and the more remote, the better. On land, of course, in the wilderness, animals are legion, hence the hunting lodges mentioned earlier. Indeed, one of the last places we passed through on the hike across Britain was a path along a small valley around two miles from Ardnamurchan, which went along a hillside filled with red deer, not just a couple, but many whole families of them. Other animals notably present in Scotland include the pine martin, the red squirrel, and through repopulation, the beaver and the wild boar. There's consideration to allowing wolves to be reintroduced, though to the best of my knowledge this hasn't happened yet. There are no plans to introduce any kind of bear, you may be pleased to know. Now, of course, when we talk about animals in Scotland, there is an elephant in the room, or I guess, more properly, a plesiosaur in the water. One place I've visited twice for a week is Loch Ness. I've been on two writing courses with the Arvon Foundation, who organise residential writing courses on a variety of topics, both times at their residence at Moniac Moor, which is now an independent writing centre, about three miles from the loch itself and tucked away in the absolute middle of nowhere. The second of these was in 2013 and concerned itself with travel writing. I still have the notes. Maybe I ought to reread them one day. As well as being in some stunning scenery and not far from the Great Glenway long-distance footpath that runs from Fort William to Inverness, it is, of course, an area famous for that cryptic prehistoric throwback, the Loch Ness Monster, or Nessie. 
Now, it is true that Loch Ness is the second largest loch in area in Scotland, at 56 kilometres squared, only Loch Lomond is bigger, as well as in depth, 230 metres, only Loch Murrah is deeper. In addition, the water is full of peat residue, so it's quite dark and mysterious. It's not a place where you really should be going diving. It's not altogether surprising rumours of creatures lurking in the depths have come about. Of course, it's only been a lake for 10,000 years. Prior to that, everything was covered in ice. So there goes the prehistoric dinosaur link. The original legend may be linked to that of the Urgiski, a very bad-tempered kelpie, or mythical water horse. Yeah, same as hippopotamus, though as far as I can tell, that particular animal's name in Gaelic is um, hippopotamus. This creature, however, tended to lurk in the Scottish lochs and along the coastlines, and had a habit of coming onto land disguised as a normal horse, and indeed could be ridden on land, but if it caught a whiff of the sea or a loch, the rider would be trapped on board as it descended to the depths. Alternatively, Nessie could just be the natural result of sampling too much of the local whisky, a word which, incidentally, comes from the same root as Ugiski. The Gaelic word whisky, meaning, interestingly, water. I mean, technically it's a shortened form of a translation of the phrase water of life, which is the old Roman or Latin name given to a particular type of distilled spirit, but it does imply just how important whisky is to the Scottish. Finally, I want to talk a little about the history of Scotland. This is where the only prehistoric mummies in the British Isles have been found, dated to around 1600-1300 BC, at Clad Hallen on South Uist, a fact I neglected to mention in my Atahal Produce pod, because I'm an idiot who doesn't plan these podcasts very well, as well as having stone circles and Iron Age forts across much of the west of the country. One assumes the weather was a bit better back then. The Romans penetrated Scotland and reached as far as Falkirk, presumably making that the most northerly town of the Roman Empire, even if not for very long. They built a wall to defend their frontier, the barely-attested Antonine Wall, of which very little survives, but then they only managed to hold it on to it for 25 years before effectively giving up and retreating back to Hadrian's Wall in what is now England, presumably to the welcome relief of the garrison stationed there, who'd been drafted in from much warmer climates like the Rhine and Syria. Yep, Immigrants from Syria came over to work on these shorts long before the concept of British had been invented, so stick that in your pipe and smoke it, Mr Fartage. Not much is known about the peoples who inhabited these parts beyond the walls, and in the post-Roman world there seem to be three groups, the Picts in the centre and the north, the Gaels from Ireland who lived in the southwest but eventually became the dominant force across the whole country, and the Vikings from Scandinavia who tended to keep to the highlands and especially the islands, Places like Shetland were indeed still speaking a Norwegian-based language as recently as the 1800s. Viking rule was at its peak under King Magnus III, also known as Magnus Barefoot, probably because he wore shorts rather than trousers. And yes, I know, but I'm going to blame a bad translation for that. He was actually famous for being told he could claim any land he could sail around, i.e. islands, whereupon he got his men to drag a boat across a small isthmus at Tarbot on the Mull of Kintyre. Hmm, loophole abuse. King Magnus later died whilst attempting to conquer Ireland, which, well, shall we say, wouldn't be the last time that a foreign power has had trouble in Ireland. Viking rule was ended in most of the islands with the Treaty of Perth in 1266, though Orkney and Shetland were ceded 200 years later as security for a dowry for a marriage between the King of Scotland and the daughter of the King of Norway. As the dowry was never paid, the islands changed hands. One assumes in theory that if Norway ever bothered to repay the money, they could have them back. I'm not sure what the islanders would think to this, though. It is interesting to note, though, the similarity between the Scandinavian flags and the flags of Shetland, Orkney, South Uist and Barra. 
The next few hundred years saw lots of wars with England, even when the two countries shared the same monarch and, after 1707, were the same country. The Union came after, in very simple terms, the London government buying out the Scottish debt in return for Scottish acquiescence. The debt was caused partly by a series of bad harvests and partly because the Scottish government at the time thought it would be a great idea to set up a colony in the Americas, specifically near the Darien Gap on the north coast of what is now Panama, which is jungle, yes, and controlled by the Spanish, who weren't exactly small fry in world politics at the time. The whole operation went about as well as you'd expect. Interestingly, the place chosen is barely inhabited even today. The equivalent province of Panama covers an area about the size of County Durham in England or Moray in Scotland and has a population of 33,000 people, which is only a couple of thousand more than the population of the Outer Hebrides. The final battle involving, effectively, England and Scotland was the Battle of Culloden in 1746. Now, it has that reputation of being England v Scotland, but it's much more accurate to say it was England, Wales and much of Scotland against the ragtag of Highlanders and just because it had been a few days since the last battle against the English and they were getting bored, France. The British government's forces won in less than two hours, and to prevent any uprising ever occurring again, pretty much destroyed the traditional clan system and land ownership regulations that had been in place for centuries and forced the region to integrate into the ways and means of the rest of the country. Parts of Scotland still haven't forgiven the London government for this, nor the subsequent Highland clearances, which were more for economic than political reasons, but probably couldn't have happened without the control that the Battle of Culloden gave them. These clearances removed people from the vast areas of the landscape, destroyed communities, and made the Highlands the remote, bleak and beautiful place that it is today. It is not for me to comment on Scottish independence, although it's interesting that I live in a Twitter bubble of SNP supporters. This may be just because I hang around with people on the left of the political spectrum, or it may be related to my belief in the context of self-determination. Listen to my previous podcast on international borders for that whole side. Well, fortunately, because we've now mentioned politics, I'm going to wrap things up for this episode. Next time I plan to be talking about something travel-related. Whether travel itself is different depending on your age, whether you travel differently, whether you're younger compared to when you're older, in terms of style, place and intention. Maybe I'll even have thought of a snappy title for it by then. Also, don't forget I have a Patreon now at Travel Tales Beyond Brochure Pod, so head on over there if you want to hear some unique content that I may get round to putting on. Until next time, keep washing your hands, and if you're feeling off colour, keep on getting better. Thank you for listening to this episode of Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, don't forget to leave a review on your podcast site of choice. I'm pretty bad at that sort of thing myself, so I'll understand perfectly if you don't. Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure was written, presented, edited and produced in the Kirkby and Ashfield studio by the Barefoot Backpacker. Music in this episode was Walking Barefoot on Grass, bonus, by Kai Engel, which is available via the Free Music Archive and used under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License. Previous episodes of this podcast will be available on your podcast service of choice, or alternatively, go to my website, barefoot-backpacker.com. If you want to contact me, I live on Twitter at rtwbarefoot, or email me at info at barefoot-backpacker.com. Until next week, have safe journeys. Bye for now.